Hello from Cork to the world. This is the Song Collector Podcast, brought to you by Roy Buckley Music. Roy, back again for another one. Good reaction to to Sean McGuinness. That's a, a lovely episode. Just a lovely conversation with him. I was so glad that he sat down with Sean, man. He's a, he's a great guy, man. He's been so good to me over the years, too, that... Uh, yeah, he's he's one of the one of the real guys in in, in our game, you know. Before we Good get guy. to today's interview, um, a little word of advance warning for listeners: uh, you need tea and biscuits for this one, <laughs> or or a six pack or something, because <laughs> because when you sat down with Hank Waddell, and I know Hank, mm-hmm. I know as as I often say when I'm introducing him, I know Hank since his name was Kevin. You know, um, <laughs> Hank. His gigs are long, his monologues are long, and the interview's long, but they're fun. You had great fun together, you two. He's a hell of a songwriter, too. See, what, what happens is, usually when when, um, when we go to interview people, it, it's, you know, backstage in the opera house in Cork, or it's somewhere where, you know, a sound check is over, and the lads might have an hour and a half before they're going on stage for their show, and they got to get ready. But with this one, Hank came into the studio, yeah. And we just kept talking. He gave us a great insight, man, in, into um, obviously his own career and his songwriting and everything. Give him but, guitars and mics and you never get rid of him. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he gave a great insight into the Cork um, music scene. Yeah. A bit like the John Spillane podcast where we got some like uh, insight into the different venues and, right. and the lobby and, right. and and uh, how the Open Kitchen and yeah. Princess Street and all the bands he was in and travelling. Because Hank's got one of the longest running residences in the country, doesn't he? Yeah. Himself and Ray on a Monday night. 26 oh. years <laughs> in Charlie's, yeah. Some Crazy. going, isn't it? Crazy. We'll get to that in a minute. But as I mentioned previously in the Sean McGuinness episode, we are coming up to, and I remember you ringing me and saying, you wanted to start this series of gigs back in today, and we've told that story a hundred times. Mm. We're coming up to 50 song collector session shows. Can you believe that, like? And we have to mark it in a particular way. And I know that you're working on a number of ways to do it. Mm. All we can reveal today is that you are going to do it, but and it's going to be big, but there's a lot of talking going on behind the scenes. Yeah, look, it's hard to uh, organise. Like... Everybody wants to come in for the 50 at one, yeah. which is great. But it's trying to figure out, like they have venues onto me and different, uh, I can't give away too much now, yeah. but there's people onto me about bringing the show to different places. And I'm up for doing all that, but the 50 at one, I want to mark it special because, you know, 50 is, is it's it's a big number, you know. I tell you, it's when big... we got to 10, we thought we had a miracle. Around, right? <laughs> like, it's hard to believe that we're, we're staring 50 in the face now. Yeah. Like. And, you know, look, man, I'm very proud of it and everything, but the show would be nothing without all these great guys turning up and, and we're all knocking out songs yeah. and having a bit of crack. But... I want to respect everyone who's yeah. been in, and I'd like to. I'd like to get as many as I can. The thing is, I suppose, Roy, like when you've got the, the legends like Coulter and our own local legends like Spillane and so many other people who who've done shows, you you do want to bring as many of them together in one place on one night for one special show. It's like trying to organise live in. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. <laughs> but we get there. We will get Look, there. In principle, PJ, I've already spoken to everyone, and yeah. they're all up for doing Good. it. But it. You know, when you think of Phil Coulter, Bagatelle, Sean McGuinness is, and WC Rambles are on their 50th anniversary tour, you know, things like that. It's trying to um, 
get everyone on the one day, yeah. you know, to do a, a big one. Like, this is something, if I think if I, if I, if, if I can pull this off with a date that suits everyone, I don't know if ever again all of those legends and uh, of artists are going to be in the one room on the one place, yeah. uh, in the one in the one place and again. I think listeners who might be saying, "Ah, oh, yeah, right," go through the list of who we've had over the last how many eight years. Go through the list just off the top of your head. We've had Coulter, we've had Christy Dignam, we've had Mike Hanrahan, Spillane, Liam Riley. Riley. We've we've had Leslie Dowdall. We've had Mickey Joe Hart. We've had. Derek Warfield, we've had who else did I really we? We forgot Derek Warfield. Actually. We had everyone that, that that I could get in. Francie Conway, yes, um, several else? times. Yeah, um, as many as I can. You know, I, I tried to get it. The Black Donnellys, yes. You know, um, everyone. <laughs> I'm thinking, about, I'm laughing because all those nights were very memorable. If I could only remember them. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. Best not, best not to go there. Let us go to the interview with, with with Hank because this is special. And like I said to people at the start, they're going to need some time. So we better stop waffling, and and yep. and, and, and let the interview do the talking. It was very enjoyable. I, I I love um hanging out with Hank and playing a few gigs with him and things over the years. Again, another guy who's like a legend for many reasons with his own career and people covering his songs and, and he put his heart and soul in, into his career. But on top of that, another great guy for looking after the the generations coming after him, mm. coming up for advice and everything like that. Mm. Hell of a nice guy. Yeah, I don't know how many people Hank has trained to play the guitar or taught them how to get a better sound out of it. Or just any, any way at all. Help them with a lyric help. or a melody. Yeah, Anything, yeah. yeah. He's, he's a great guy. Fabulous, great guy. fabulous fella. I enjoy chatting with him. So just before we go to that though, there's a song. Uh, and you've chosen this song for a reason. Well, Hank can write about anything, but there was a song I heard him doing a while back called Maiden's Tour. And then I saw a video on YouTube. He's out in Azerbaijan on TV doing this song. And he's got um, some famous singer over there who I had never heard of singing along with him. And, and uh, I was saying, Hank, <laughs> Widell on the telly in Azerbaijan. That that's Hank, though, man. You find him checking me dates here. It's not the first of April, is it? <laughs> you know, and I just I heard a recent, very fresh version of the song, and I I, I think we should kick off with it. There's a song. It's called Maiden's Tower. Maiden's Tower and all the wars and everything never fell, and that's that's the line of the song. No one's ever taken Maiden's Tower, so he he speaks about a bit of it in the interview anyway. Yeah, let, let's kick off with that. Hit play there, PJ, and we'll have a listen to Maiden's Tower from Hank Waddell. And by the way, we won't be coming back at the end of this one because it's long enough as it is, and I think Hank will even sign off for us. So <laughs> I'll, I'll see you next time, Roy. We'll see you. All right, PJ. Thanks again, man. Tower. 
in the quest for wealth and the fight for power. No one's ever taken Maiden's Tower. A horde of hapless camels in a truck. A ladder full of apples by the buck. At Maiden's Tower, it's all going down. Like Alice and Princess, the hottest baby in In the quest for wealth and the fight for power, no one's ever taken Maiden's Tower. I'm sitting in the company of the legendary Hank Waddell. Hank, thank you so much for coming in for a chat with me. Good evening. Good morning. <laughs> you can listen to a podcast anytime, Roy. How but are you, it's wonderful to be in this wonderful studio with you. How which I wasn't aware of before, but it's good to be here. Really, huh? I'm impressed with this place. Yeah, it's a nice studio. It's good to know that Cork has this kind of place. How did Christmas and Alec go off papers when we were up Great, the great. I don't know when people will be listening to this, but... 
in the Christmas of 2019, Ray Barron and I celebrated 25 years of playing in Charlie's and we released a Christmas single Brilliant. called Charlie's on a Cold Cork Christmas Eve. Tom had a, a hand in helping us record it and he also was one of the sparks that got me to write it as well. Off the podcast to where we always kick it off. Did Hank Waddell figure out or decide that um, music was going to be his life? This was the thing for me. When, when did that manifest itself in your head? The, twice I had serious moments of like, this is what I want to do. Okay. Uh, twice. And one when I was really young, when I was five years old, watching the Beatles sing Hey Jude one week and then Revolution the next week on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. You see, that was 1968. I was five years old. The year before, they had released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Mm -hmm. And my father and I went to the department store, wherever it was that, and my father bought the record. And you've seen that record. It's colorful. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful record. And, you know, the gatefold is them in there sort of vaguely uh, British, psychedelic, militaristic mode, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I thought, who are these people? And, but I, within a year, I knew every word on that album and could sing along with it. And uh, then I was allowed up to see them perform Hey Jude one week and then the next week, Revolution. You say you want a revolution. And I remember then thinking, I, I don't know who these people are, but I, I want to be like them. I specifically remember that. And anyone that knows me is probably sick of that story. <laughs> um, but that's the truth. Um, and it's funny, really, because I didn't know anything about the Ed Sullivan show. I didn't know anything about... Yeah, because Ed, Ed Sullivan, if you played Ed, Ed Sullivan, you, you were made, basically. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that when I was... I mean, I knew, actually, the funny thing is I knew the Ed Sullivan show because I used to watch it at my grandma and grandpa Weedell's house on Sunday nights if I was allowed to stay up but I don't I don't didn't equate the Beatles with that the mm. way and then subsequently I found out more I didn't know anything pre-pepper so you were five years old I was five years old and I thought whatever it, whatever oh, it is I want to do this I just I just Brilliant, and then the White Album came out in the wake of Hey Jude and Revolution the music I thought I I would love to do this so th this kind of leads on to my next question well uh, but just so to answer the rest of your question <laughs> the rest of your question was that when, when I was on a uh, second part yeah, yeah second. just second the second time was uh, many years later well yeah many years later less than 20 years later uh, in 1985 I was in France busking with Princess Street which we'll get on to but uh, I was laying down upstairs before a French dinner with the people that were hosting us. Uh, one of the guys in the band had a girlfriend and her family were having us there. They had chalets and sort of a, a water park or something in, in Brittany. But I was on my own and I had on both sides of a cassette tape. Remember cassette tapes? <laughs> I, uh, I had <laughs> two different John Prine albums and I remember laying there listening to these and it was beautiful. It was in France. I was busking. I was young. I was only I was only 22, but I thought, right, that's it. This is, this is all I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything else. I qualified to teach secondary school here in Ireland. 
But I, I had no, I had no real ambition. Isn't it history and English or something? History and economics are economics, qualified yeah. in. But I mean, if I was to tell you my teaching career, it'd be a whole different interview. I ended up <laughs> teaching. I ended up teaching in the Bronx in 1986 because I needed to get a job when I arrived in the United States. The way you do in the United States, not that you don't need a job here or anything like that. But I was at that point. I was 23, and I did take the job teaching, but I spent most of my time down there. Greenwich Village. We'll get to that in here. But that those are the two times I remember thinking, listen to those John Prine albums. This is, all, this is all I want to do. I was with people that I could write and play and have the same ambitions that I thought I had and that I thought they had. You know, and you know, so the most. second moment was really like to do with John Prine, was it? The second moment was definitely listening to those songs. Mm -hmm. and great songwriter, man. A great songwriter. But it wasn't just that he was a great songwriter, it was just making that sound, mm -hmm. you know. And the thing about John Prine is it's it's a very um, Americana sound. I mean, he's great songs like um, Sam Stone, and a lot of people know it, Speed of the Sound of Loneliness, and you've yeah. uh, Angel from Montgomery, and all great songs. Like and I, they are great songs. And to this day, he'll still surprise you. Mm -hmm. You know, his last album was astounding. Mm -hmm. You know, so I like that... I thought I, this is where I'd like to try and get into, album. like get into writing songs and making that sound or making whatever kind of sound that could come from me or the mm -hmm. people I was playing with. I remember thinking that very, very. But he's great lyrics in his songs too, like um, uh, souvenirs and stuff. You know, good, just brilliant songs. You know. Oh yeah, he's, he's amazing. So uh, before I, I nearly cut you off on the second part of your no, question, no, it's okay. I was going to say, so you were five years old. You were living. You were born in, in Dayton, Ohio. I was born in Dayton, Ohio, to so an Irish five. mother from Mallow and an American father from uh, Floral Park, um, on the border of New York and New York City and Nassau County on Long Island. So my dad was a New Yorker. And my mother went out there in 58. She met my father in 1960. They got married in 62. I came along in 63. And then in 74, we moved here to Mallow, my mother's hometown. My mother didn't want to be, my mother had 16 years in New York and she had had enough. Yeah, so she had a very radical move. But my father loved Ireland because he'd been here before he met her. And uh, that's the story. They were both in love with the idea of raising their family in Ireland. And that's, that's what it was. We ended up in Mallow in 1974. Yeah. So how old were you in 1974? I was moved, 11. So you moved to Ireland when you were moved 11? Moved permanently. I'd been here in 66 when I was three <coughs> uh, for a holiday with my mother and my sister Maura. Uh, there was just the two of us then. And then there was just Maura and myself. And then in 71, when I was eight, we came because my mother's brother was getting married in 1971. Frank married Angela. And we all came over from America, my mother and her sister and a whole bunch of people. And we all came over that summer of 71. You started your um, uh, guitar playing so in, in the States? When, in the States, yeah. When you were nine? When I was nine, I went for lessons. My sister and I both went for lessons to a guy called Mr. Scarphone. Scarphone. Mr. Scarphone, good Italian name. Cool name, yeah. Mr. Scarphone. <laughs> but it was really funny because my sister was very diligent learning the dots and the notes and all that sort of stuff. And I wasn't. And I remember... He got off and showed me rock and roll songs. He discovered that I, I, I really, I had spent a lot of time listening to, uh, to those Beatles records, and to at that point starting to listen to Bob Dylan. So I got a good sense of rhythm on the guitar. At least I imagined I'd be able to do it, <laughs> which is still what's going on. Really, I could imagine <laughs> that I can yeah. do it, so I do it. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, and that's that's a life. But uh, I remember 
going down, he'd show me whatever kind of rock and roll song, Beatles song or Bob Dylan song or, you know, at that point, the Mike, Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5 were huge and I'd be learning how to play rhythm and I, I, I got a good idea on how to play, how to back myself in a song. My big song at the time was Three Dog Night, a song called uh, Joy to the World. Well into so like banging out rock and roll from a, uh, a pretty young, from, from the get-go. But what I wanted to say about Mr. Scarfone was he'd show me the songs, he'd show me the chords, write them out, and then we'd watch the latest baseball game because we were both <laughs> Mets fans. My parents were paying for this, like, you know. Paying for you to watch yeah, Mets games. But, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My sister was very good. My sister, she was like on the books reading the notes and playing all the arpeggios in the notes and reading the half notes and the, the notation and stuff like that. And, and does she still play? More can play a bit, yeah. I didn't know. She, could, she doesn't, you know, she she can play the guitar, but she doesn't play all that much. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, on, on that topic, yeah, was it always just guitar, or uh, I'll ask you in a different way? Um, what was the guitar the first instrument that you were drawn to? Yeah. And was there ever any other instruments that I you took piano lessons in Mallow subsequently you? in the late seventies? Like, yeah, in the, not in America, no, here in in Ireland in Mallow, yeah. Mrs. Kepler. Well, Mallow Anyone is, that's from Mallow, Mallow is in Ireland, Hank. Yes, that's true. But I'm just saying, Mrs. Kepler. I used to get on. We got a piano, and uh, I took I took lessons and and tried. I, I can really I can play really rudimentary piano. Okay. Like I know how to make chords and stuff and pick up melodies and stuff like that, but. I wouldn't call myself a piano player. So, uh, I mean, you're, you're obviously a rocker, man, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, it, it took me a while. I mean, now that you have me here and we're talking about, like, you know, it wasn't very long before I... My father got, uh, then again, my father got two other albums that were kind of what you'd call game changers for me and then for millions of people worldwide. One was uh, Exile of Main Street by the Rolling Stones, which is a masterpiece in just dirty rock and roll. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just them being amazing. I mean, it's just a really, it's a dirty rock and roll, raw album. It's like, you know, yeah. and I loved it. Like, and I can remember being really excited by the sounds and stuff like that. And the other album he got was uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. And I can remember to this day, he came home with the, you know, the prism and the the light and the rainbow coming on. And, mm -hmm. and he said, this is the new music from England. <laughs> I had to think about this is the new music from England. And it was in 1972, you know, or whatever yeah. year it was released, or 72 or 73. It was the new music from, from England. Yeah. But I just remember my father, this is the new music from England. He put it on, it's like, you know. Big deal. You know, time yeah. ticking away and money and all that. And I, so yeah. I got an idea that uh, there was something about English rock bands uh, that I really... Doug, you know, that I really, I thought, well, there's something going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing about coming to Mallow was, and maybe your listeners will know what I'm talking about. When I got to Mallow in 74, like I said, I'd been there in 66 and 71, but when I got there in 74, there was something fit about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band that hadn't fit before, that just the atmosphere of the album, I, I thought it was wonderful while I was a kid in New York, but then I really got it when I was living in Mallow, because, you know, these two islands, despite their differences in the wars and uh, all that sort of stuff, there's a lot of shared culture and history. And, mm. you know, the Beatles were Irish and mm. Liverpool was Irish mm. and all that sort of stuff. I, like, And just, you know, it's time for tea and meet the wife and how, you know, I, yeah. I got it. I, I got something more by just coming here. And it was the same for uh, English rock bands like Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones and that. But then at the same time, 
the other thing I was discovering was Bob Dylan and the band, mm, that absolutely. deep Americana yeah, yeah, thing, yeah. you know? And um, just that you got me going here now, for anyone that's interested. What happened when we moved here in 74 is that we moved here on a Russian boat, lock, stock and barrel, literally, on a Russian boat. We went from New York Harbor to Cove Harbor in seven days on a Russian boat called the Mikhail Lermontov, which has since sunk off the coast of New Zealand. Wow. And there's a whole documentary on that. Anyway, it was a Russian cruise liner. Oh, and, and they decided, no, we're not going to do this by plane. We're going to do this by boat. And we went from New York Harbor to Cove in seven days. Maura, my sister, and then we had a little sister, Siobhan. She's older now, obviously, but she was, she's, there was three of us by that time. And Teresa came along eventually. That's my other sister. She was born here. But uh, we, we moved from... New York to Cove, seven days. When we left, Richard Nixon was the president. When we got to Cove, he had resigned and Gerald Ford was the president. So it was a very momentous time. But what I wanted to get to say was that my father stayed here for a few weeks in August 74, but then he went back to New York, 74, 75, 76, and he was back in the end of 76, so he was eventually gone. And when he left, he left all his vinyl with me. And I... I was just talking about this with my wife Eileen the other day. I I think I got into I got into his vinyl, especially three Bob Dylan albums, um, "Bringing It All Back Home," "Highway 61," and "Blonde on Blonde." Mm. He had "New Morning" and John Wesley Harding as well. So he had all these Dylan albums, and in an effort because he was gone, you know, it wasn't like today where you can look someone, hey, how's it going in LA? You look at yeah. them and, and it's all space age stuff now. You know, I used yeah, to write him letters time. and there'd be the odd phone call and stuff. But the way I kind of kept my connection to him was listening to the, these albums like religiously. Did your father play music? No, but he loved music and rock and roll and okay. jazz. He loved jazz especially. That's cool. Which is interesting because my youngest son, who looks a lot like my dad, has just moved to New York there within the past year and he's picked up a love of jazz in New York. Wow. Which I think is a kind of full circle type of thing. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Come on, Osh. Come on, Osh. my youngest, youngest fella. Yeah. So, like, Hank, uh, when you moved from America to yeah. Ireland, what would you say were, like, the fundamental differences? Like, what, what were kind of the, we say, the cultural differences? Well, I tell you straight up now. Obviously, there must have your, been. Your listeners will love this, and you'll love this as well. When I was leaving PS191 in Queens, public school 191, New York City, which is a multicultural, multiracial, diverse, yeah. lots of different religions in 1974, public school. My <laughs> father did not want to send us to Catholic school back then. In Ireland? No, in, in the U.S. On the U.S., okay. And public school was free and, you know. So we went to PS191, even though we were in the parish of St. Gregory's. I could have gone to St. Gregory's. Right. Um, but PS191, <coughs> so there's a cultural difference right there. I was from the age of five, when I started school in 68, it was multicultural, multiracial, yeah. uh, multi-religion, different faiths. It was all public school. I went to school every ethnicity you could possibly imagine mm -hmm. in New York City at the time. And it was great. That's where I started off in school. When I got here, it was straight Irish Roman Catholic school. Nothing against them. I mean, you know, I got a good education mm -hmm. in the United States and here. I would never say that I suffered education-wise. But, but, but what I'm trying to say to you is this. You asked what was yeah. the big day. Here you go. That was I warm. said to my mother, I said, 
I said to her, I said, uh, is it true that they can cane you here in Ireland? My mom was like, ah, no, the, well, maybe, I, I don't know what this, my mother was a little bit vague about it. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I got into Brother Kieran's class. He was known as the Terrier, God rest him. <laughs> he had a bamboo cane and... He used it as a... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. It was like, I was like, wow. Crazy, man. So you, you, like, you could, like, even by 74, you couldn't touch a student in the United States. That's you what could, I was going to say. You know, but here, lady, put out your hand. So you, <laughs> so you, you came from, like, a uh, very liberal-minded yeah. school to real staunch Catholic school. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I, I, I did. I did. I get that. You, since you're asking what was the difference, that, that is one. one of the big differences. I remember, I was, was like, I can remember, Wow. You know, because in America, I'd seen this thing called Tom Brown School Days on PBS. I don't know. Your older listeners will remember Tom Brown School Days. It's sort of You'll like have a, to educate me, because you know, I don't. Yeah, know. well, I mean, like the thing about Harry Potter is that Harry Potter and Hogwarts was kind of like that. That reminded me of Tom Brown School Days. It's a famous book. I forget who wrote it. But Tom Brown School Days. You know, and they had canes, and you know, All right. people got whipped on their buttocks. <laughs> no, there wasn't any of that going on in the school, but there was, you know, there was that weirdness of violence, like you know. Yeah. Of violence in the school. And I, wow. But having said that, uh, and my uncle was a patrician brother. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not going to complain about any of that. That's, mm -hmm. you know, I accept that's the way it was. Yeah. That is the way it was. Like, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm glad it's not like that anymore. You know, mm -hmm. um, I'd say that also had a lot to do with me not wanting to teach because that's a heavy vocation. Mm. You yeah. want to be cut off for that, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, that's another interview as well. Right? It's a whole other <laughs> yeah. interview. My views on education, the education um, system. So I'm not complaining about any of it, really. Let me jump back to the music a bit, so as well. Actually, what were the? I mean, were you too young to, to really notice? What were the differences we say musically between um, America and Ireland when you got when you came over here? Or was is it an unfair question because you were so young? Would you have taken much stock of that? Yes. You did? Yes. Great, okay. Yes, when I got here uh, in 74, um, I guess I was 11 when I left, but I was starting to become aware of rock bands in the part of New York that I was in, which is kind of the suburbs. It wasn't the mm -hmm. Lower East Side of Manhattan where punk rock was starting. So I really didn't know anything about anything I was beginning to know who the Allman Brothers were and mm. who the Grateful Dead were and all that and those bands like I said well not so much Bob Dylan in the band but I was aware of Woodstock and I was aware of uh, Altamont the Rolling Stones Big Free Concert in 69 I was aware of Watkins Glen where the Allman Brothers in the band and Grateful Dead played with all of the news so I was aware of that kind of music and I was also aware of um, Alice Cooper mm -hmm. School's Out and Elton John. I was aware of people like that in America. Mm -hmm. And when I got here in 74, uh, it took me a while to actually realize that the UK pop scene was all the Bay City Rollers and the Rubettes and Mud. Now, your uncle Mick and anyone else that's of our vintage will remember all these bands. You'd go to the local disco in Mallow and they'd be playing all these songs by the Bay City Rollers, Mud, uh, the Rubettes, uh, Gary Glitter, Alvin Stardust. And, uh, and I was like, 
this is nothing like the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. This is, uh, I, I could not figure out how did they go from this and Pink Floyd and all that sort of stuff too. So, uh, retrospectively, I understood how, I understand how it all works and the British pop scene and all that and that the Beatles were just the same as the Bay City Rollers when they started off except mm -hmm. that they had the songwriting chops and they paid their dues in Hamburg whereas the Bay City Rollers paid their dues around Scotland they couldn't really write songs or play in the studio or mm -hmm. whatever, didn't have the same, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, because Phil so, Coulter wrote a lot of their songs. Well, there you go. Yeah. I mean, like, I, you, retrospectively, you become aware of that. That's what I love about Phil Coulter. At one point, he's producing the Bay City Rollers in 74, and then he's producing the Dubliners, and then he's producing Billy Conley <laughs> and Planksteen. Yeah. The very interesting yeah. cat. Phil Coulter. We had Phil on, on the podcast uh, a while back and we, we were talking about a great, great song where kind of uh, brings me on to another question I wanted to ask you. But just to go back about like, what what did I think? I, I, and then punk happened. And to me at the point, I was like, I, I got the energy of the Sex Pistols and the Clash specifically. Mm -hmm. But the whole thing that happened in the media really disgusted me. Like, not so much that it was disgusting, the vomiting and the spitting and all that. Okay, fair enough. You know, I get that. That's fine. People are weird when they're teenagers. I knew that even as I was going into my teenage years. Mm -hmm. But I I didn't like the disrespect they showed to older musicians mm -hmm. or musicians that have been around for a while. Like, And um, it's not that, you know, that Led Zeppelin weren't bloated, that they weren't whatever, you know. But... Again, retrospective, you find out it's the record companies and the promoters and the media that make all this sort of stuff up. But at the time, I was not impressed with that, and I thought there's got to be something better out there. And but then there should be respect. They, well, you know, but the people, you know, people are they can be disrespectful when they're younger and they don't know any better. But I think the media really pumped that mm -hmm. at the expense of the music, you know. Uh, and I felt the same about glam rock. You know, it had really nothing to do with music. It had to do with the product. Mm -hmm. You know, it had to do with uh, selling an idea and a product and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Retrospectively, you learn a lot how all these things are connected, like we were saying about Phil Coulter. Yeah. Who would ever think that the Bay City Rollers and Planksty and, Every, yeah, and Billy Connolly and, and all these people, the Dubliners, would have a common link. Well, there it is. It's, it's Phil Coulter, mm -hmm. you know. And there's lots of people like Phil Coulter in the business like that. Yeah, you know? there, there is. It's just when you, the Bay City Rollers came up. I just watched a documentary on the Hollies last night because my friend Tom Clark told me to watch it. And it struck me that they weren't unlike the Bay City Rollers either, the Hollies. How do you and mean? The Hollies, but just in terms of being a British pop band. Okay. You know, it took me a while to get my head around what a British pop band was. And it, it took me a while to realize that it took the Beatles a while to break away from the suits and the ties before they became what the cool hippies that I thought they were. Yeah. You know, yeah, it, yeah, it yeah. took, it, you know, but you learn about the pop business as you go along. They were probably evolving as well though, you know? They were, yeah. yeah you have to kind of yeah. evolve and move forward yeah. a bit, you know? Oh, totally, yeah. And don't get me wrong, like, I love the Sex Pistols, okay, you know, and I love the Boomtown Rats when they came out as well, yeah. you know? By that time, I was becoming a young teenager. But I wasn't impressed with the way the media portrayed all these, you know, I, I could see through it. It just looked like, you know, hype. Like, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not over-impressed mm -hmm. with bullshit hype, you know what I mean? I realize that it's there and it sells a product and all that, but that's what it is. I'm more interested in the music. And... At around that time, my father had come back from the United States, and I remember him saying this to me. And he'd actually said, he said, you know, you like all these big bands like the Beatles, like the Stones. He said, they're all great, he said, but the best musicians generally are the people that you never really hear of on TV and the radio, the people that work behind the scenes, the mm -hmm. session people, the songwriters, the people that make the music happen 
in an unobtrusive, non-star-like way. It took me a while to realize what he was talking about, but you know, he's right. Like you know, yeah, it's the people that you don't really read about, the people in recording studios, you know, the session musicians, the people who take music seriously in a way that has nothing to do with being a pop star or a rock star or a, a classical star or anything like that. You know, it's the people you don't really hear of that make the music what it is. Sometimes, you know. Mm. And it, and it's it's weird, like, that these days, the way the music business is, I mean, we were talking about John Prine earlier. Yeah. I mean, you know, back I when I heard him. about him first, he was like a secret. I went to see him in the Cock Opera House um, a couple of years ago. He was, he was amazing. Just yeah, he's, he's fantastic. Great songs, man, you know, and just, and quite witty as well, between songs, you know, sure. delivering things, just, just a proper performer, you know, like a storytelling uh, vibe, you know. Um, I, for some reason, I keep jumping across you when you're giving not me Not at all, not at all. Me I'm, sure, I'm sure our editor will do what he needs to do. <laughs> He's not even listening, is he? You can chop that out. <laughs> um, we were just chatting about people there, like uh, songwriters, and like you mentioned, Phil Coulter there, about um, the different uh, genres of music he can write songs in. You have a pretty um, eclectic mix as well there. of like I mean, what I'm hearing since you were five and discovering the Beatles, maybe you didn't understand why you loved them, but later on... You, yeah, retrospectively, you know, yeah. I'm 57 soon, so... So that, that was what I was kind of getting on to here. But yeah, yeah. When did songwriting come into your life? Because And, and, and I'll, I'll progress on this because I know a lot of people have covered your songs and things, and I, I've seen you like a million times play, man, and I, I love all your performances, you know. And, but... um. Where, did, when did this first question about songwriting, since we're moving on to this topic, when did did that become? Um, I can remember something you wanted to do. There's a song on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band called "Getting Better." It's getting better all the time, and there's a line in it about getting past my door, and I remember trying to write a song called "You Won't Get Past My Door" because of. And that. it was yeah, I was only about eight or nine when I tried to write that song, wow. but I really I thought. Well, you just put chords together and you just start singing. Yeah. <laughs> I still do that. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit more, maybe a little bit more involved now, but that's basically what still happens. Oh, that sounds good. Let's. So let's would see that it. have been the very first song that you... That's there, yeah, but I, I don't remember... Any of it? I don't. I just remember that was yeah, what yeah, I tried yeah. to write a song called You Won't Get Past My Door, and I was... It's just really... I was really young, though. I was about eight or nine, but there was a, a girl who was annoying me in school. Do you know... And uh, I decided to, to aim it at her. I, wow, I, I, without, song, without any song written about a girl, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, I aim it at her, you won't get past my door, you know. But I didn't, I just remembered singing that over and over again and trying to trying to make something of it. That's, and then I didn't really, then, then something happened actually when I came to Ireland then, because you were asking about cultural differences yeah. and about music and all this sort of stuff, the differences. Well, here's something. I ended up, uh, I ended up being the guitar player for hire around town in Mallow, of a certain age. Well, hang on, because well, not so much for hire, but like I, I could be depended on to go and play my guitar. There were lots of great guitarists in Mallow around that time, and great musicians. Just like, for the know, listeners, yeah. roughly what age are you, or what year is this? This is around 74, 75, 76. So you're a teenager. I'm a teen. I'm well. I'm eleven, going on 12, 13 into that, and the, <coughs> and. Uh, at that point, nothing was to stop me getting into a band or trying to get a band together and all that, which I did in Mallow. But I started playing with various school bands, like uh, 
And we play stuff like Tour de Love and we play all these sort of things that I've subsequently found out were Planksty songs and mm. famous Irish tunes, you know. Um, and that's where I learned a lot about rhythm and chords and all this, this stuff as well. And the other thing that you should know really is that um, in 1978, when I was 15, and 1980, 1980, when I was 17, I was in a I was in a ballad group that uh, was called Nahashing E. And I played guitar behind a boy soprano, John O'Leary, who's now a doctor, and three Kylie sisters and Helena Manny. And they were Nahashing. And they sang the Connemara Cradle song and the town I love so well. <laughs> and I was the guitar player and I wasn't allowed to sing. But we won the Scornanogue All Ireland. Oh, yeah final in 1978 at the National Stadium and I got to be on the stage a few weeks ago after an absence of I don't know how many years 42 years wow was <laughs> playing with Keela yeah nice. playing with Keela and it was great to be in there I always remember playing that and if you want to know where I got a taste for wanting to play the big crowds it was definitely that because we were on stage twice and we won. we we won yeah you know yeah. We won the whole thing and we were wearing red ties and white shirts. And What more does a young kid need to stand there winning a competition? Win a competition stage, and there's yeah. like 2,000 people at this thing yeah. from all over the country. I'll always remember. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's another thing about you, man. I, I know we go back a while, but since I know you, um, there is musicians and entertainers of all sorts from old to the, the, the old school to, to like the younger gang who like... Everyone who knows you has a ton of respect for you, you know, and you should know that, you know, um, for how you perform and what you write and everything. Like, there's a, like, it, the proof is there. I mean, the likes of Keela there now who are well known would, would just, your your pals will say, will you join us on this big gig, you know? That, mm. That's nice to, to know, you know, that, um, yeah. You, and you deserve it, Hank, you know? You deserve that respect. Well, I enjoy, I've always kind of enjoyed, um, we were talking earlier before the mics were on. That's my phone calling me from the distance. You can edit that out. Um, I enjoyed, I learned to uh, to be myself by playing music. I, I think for, for the sake of sanity, and this goes back to listening to the, when my father was away, and I, just, I was talking to my wife Eileen about it, that I there's a certain amount of... Uh, I, I think I, it, it sounds dramatic, but I, I I do generally believe that if I wasn't doing this, I would be incredibly unhappy. Oh, yeah? If I wasn't playing music, I would be incredibly unhappy. Or I wouldn't, if I thought that I couldn't go for it the way I imagined to go for it, come hell or high water, which both have come, mm. that I would be very unhappy. So it, I think it had a lot to do with my sanity and my happiness. Uh, dating back to the time when my father was away, listening to all, like those Bob Dylan albums. Like, like and I'm not talking about just casually listening and rocking to them, like knowing every single note of every single mm -hmm. inflection of his voice on those albums and subsequently anyone else that, if I really like something, I will listen to it like 10 times in a row. Like the first time I heard... Uh, the Dimming of the Day, Richard mm -hmm. Thompson, Richard Thompson yeah. and Richard and Linda Thompson. 
I, I, I think I listened to that like 10 times in a row mm. at volume. Mm. So at like, just, you know, just to hear it, like, yeah, there's a lot of people like that, you know? I do. But I, I, I definitely, it has something to do with my sanity and my happiness. That's why I do it. Even though, like, sometimes, you know, you end up broke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, You know, yeah. and, uh, but then you find out that's, uh, that's something everyone goes through, you know? And then sometimes you have a load of bread. Again, as my wife Eileen says, it's a feast it's of famine. It's very turbulent. And, 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 it's a feast know, or a famine. You know? It is, you know. Do, do, you, do, do you find so that, like, um, maybe something of music uh, filled the... I don't want to say a void, but it could, like if you were down about something, that music took you out of it sometimes, is it? Um, not specifically. It's more general like that Okay. for me. It's more, I mean, uh, like a, a good gig can, oh, yeah. you know, boost your spirits. Uh, if sure, you write a song, yeah. you get a good, yeah, but it's, I don't, I not for myself, but I realized that if I play a good gig or if I do something musically with people publicly and I deliver it well, that it has an effect on people. I know that. But for myself, it's just like there's no question, but this is what I'm going to do. Mm. There's just no question. So, like, you know, it, it can be difficult maybe to live with that from time to time. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to hold on to things uh, or hold on to relationships or hold on to, but that's what it is. It's not necessarily therapeutic for me, although it it generally is, but not specifically. So it kind of, <laughs> music gives you happiness and it gives you uh, a lot of great things. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. It does put a lot of strain on, like you said, their relationships are just, Life in general, like I, I know you have kids and everything, and being away, especially when kids are younger and stuff, like it is tough for people on the road, you know. That's true. That's true. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been very fortunate with my missus. I mean, we have four kids: Rory, Sarah, Neve, and uh, the aforementioned Oshin. Yeah. You know, they're all doing well for themselves, as far as we can tell. Yeah. They're all grown up, um, and they're all from Cork. Um, I've been lucky to base myself here and do what I do from here. Again, come hell or high water. Mm -hmm. And they both have come and gone and will come and go again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they've all pretty much done well. And I think that it's because I do place a certain amount of store on a certain sort of stability and sanity mm. that comes from uh, me being involved with playing music, being involved with writing, recording, playing gigs, you know. That's very basic. There's more to it than that, as you know. You know, there's promoters, there's management, there's agents, there's exposure, there's being, you know, doing it well, mm -hmm. you know, production values, recording production values. There's all that sort of stuff as well chatting for a while I want to play some music because I want to drop in some of your songs throughout, throughout this uh, episode of, of, the, great. of the podcast I love uh, when you do uh, New Yorkers live I, I'm a New Yorker right are you a New Yorker I wrote that song in Cork in Cork <laughs> so 
Are you uh, in New Yorker? I was sitting, Are you in I was sitting down watching it in Mahan. In Mahan? And was watching a movie called uh, The Stars of 45, a World War II movie about the PR business in New York. Great movie. Cab Calloway was in it. A whole bunch. It was like one of those showcase Hollywood movies about New York City. So, uh, you know, I am a New Yorker, but I'm based in Cork. I'm an old Corker, New Yorker. <laughs> My whole life has been, as you can tell from me talking earlier, bouncing back and forth between New York City and Cork City. That's just the way my life has gone. When I'm in Cork, I'm always thinking about getting back to New York. And when I'm in New York, I'm always coming back to Cork. Big so I, I don't know what to say. I mean, like, you know, I got on a boat that left New York that came to Cork. The Titan I wouldn't go see the Titanic for years because the, the ship sank. And I came on a boat that didn't sink. The opposite direction. Well, weren't we lucky? Let's have a listen to uh, New Yorkers. Uh, how do you, hang on, yeah. do you call it New Yorkers or do you call it New Yorkers? I'm a New Yorker. Well, some people say, sing yeah. that one, I'm a native New Yorker, Hank. So, That's another song. There's so many songs about New York, you know, it's like, but it, it's my song, <coughs> New Yorkers. Yeah, but I've, I've heard people call it New Yorkers and I've heard people ask it's it. It's New Yorkers for, because in I'm that movie, there's a line that goes, New Yorkers would go anywhere for a first night. That's the line and of the that's song, the right? first line of the yeah. song. And I was watching it on a rainy morning or early afternoon, waiting to pick the kids up from school or something like that. This movie came on, old black and white movie, and it was about New York. And like I said, that Cab Calloway was in it. It's a brilliant movie. Well, mm. it's not a brilliant movie like Citizen Kane or Apocalypse Now, but it's a great movie for Cab Calloway and all these stars of 1944. It's a war movie. And that was the line in it. Yeah. Well, New York is always changing. I brought a cork band to play on top of the Empire State Building. I want to get onto that. Let me fucking do the thing, will you? And then we come back into it after that. You have to do it again, no? Because we kept. We're supposed to go like blah 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 blah. Here's the song, and then come back out of it instead of getting into another conversation. Oh my god! I think you should play the song now. Give my regards to Bleecker Street. 
Song which is finished and and is still fresh and everything. As Brendan Bean, when they they asked Brendan Bean what he thought of New York, and he said it'd be lovely though when it's finished. <laughs> and so that Hank, I think you are in New York. It's all over that song. Uptown, downtown, all around this big town. Yeah, but I mentioned Princess Street in the song, which brings me on to this. Uh-huh. Of all the many bands you were in, yeah, I, I want to kind of do this in chronological order, so. I didn't write the Princess Street song. That was written by John Spillane. The Mighty John. The Mighty John. The Cork Bard. Yes, indeed. So tell me about um, getting into the bands. Let, let, let's play a little game here. Name, can you name me? All the bands I've ever been not in? Not all of them because I'll be here all week. But <laughs> can you name uh, your first couple of bands? Leading up until, because I know there was some before Princess Street, Open Kitchen. Uh, well, in, in Mallow, I had a a band called Cold Sweat um, with Billy Attridge from Mallow. And before that, I had a band called Caps, C-A-P-P-S, which my friend John Callahan claims to have managed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, John's from Mallow as well. Um, yeah, and I... The big thing for Cold Sweat was to come up and play Sir Henry's. Mm. You've probably heard of Sir Henry's. Absolutely. Yeah. Sir Henry's is like the CBGBs of Cork City, so to speak. It was the club to go to. And I can remember Henry's when it was a small club. And the, the big thing for me in the late 70s and the early 80s was to get to Cork and go to Sir Henry's and try to get my band on Sir Henry's. I remember actually getting a gig there once and getting a load of people come down and see us play and all that was. That great. was the gig to be on. That it? was the gig. Henry's was the place to be and the gig to be on. It was it used to be kind of a small club. It wasn't unlike the lobby. I was going to move on to the lobby. It was. Right, it yeah. wasn't unlike the lobby or say even Collins or someplace like that that are around today. Uh, but it was the place, and that that was the rock club in Cork City, um, and then it kind of became part of the Grand Parade Hotel, which used to be Chandra's and all this sort of stuff. And But the Henry's was the place to play. Yeah, mm -hmm. Sir Henry's. Yeah, and uh, my band Cold Sweat, we got to play there once. And uh, the other thing that we did once, just so that you know, there was a place called the Bodega, which is not Benny McCabe's place now. There was another place called the Bodega, uh, 
<coughs> in the city, and they used to run gigs there. And do you remember Mick Lynch, God rest him? I'd say you do may remember Mick Lynch. He had a thing called Don for Chickens um, before he passed on. Uh, Mick was a very uh, interesting cork sort of punk poet. He was involved with the whole sort of punk scene here. Um, back in the day with Five Gun to the Sea and all this sort of stuff, and he put us on in the bodega, which was down an alleyway off of Oliver Plunkett Street. I think it became another nightclub eventually. But anyway, we played there, and it was a big deal to play there as well. And But I was in Mallow, and like to get to Cork from Mallow was the big deal to try and get a gig in Cork. And then I started going to UCC, and I studied... <coughs> I went to UCC after my leaving cert in 1981, and I was there from 81 to 85. This is leading into the whole Princess Street thing there. And uh, I didn't get a grant. I didn't get enough honors to get a grant. Um, but I did get into UCC on a matriculation. This is very specific qualifying for university stuff. And it was 1981, and I just did an arts degree in history and economics. I had a liking for history. And uh, I did that in 81, and it was a big deal for my Mallow band with that fella called um, Billy Attridge and another guy called Donald Desmond. We had a three-piece band called Open Kitchen. And uh, we played in Cork and Henry's, and we played in the Bodega. But then when I came up to Cork in 1981 to make money, because I wasn't getting the grant, I decided to go busking. And so you were working for your money to put yourself in? I, just to have some sort of money for yeah. myself. And it was, it was one of the best educations I ever got in terms of performing, busking on the streets of Cork, and I maintain, I don't want to say this too loudly, emphasize it too much, because the moment you say something, sometimes it'll be taken away. But Cork is definitely one of the greatest cities for quietly busking in the world. I hope they never license it. I hope they never, I hope they never do anything to to make it regulated or anything like that. You mm -hmm. know, and I hope the people that come here to busk recognize that always and don't ruin it for everybody else. There's something I'm going to say as an elder now. If you're going okay. to come to Cork to to busk, do it well. You know, when you say do it well, well, well I mean, what do, advice do, are you giving buskers? I'm not, I'm, what advice I'm giving is to do it well so that no one's going to shut it down or regulate it the way it is in London or Dublin or someplace like that. Okay. Because there's so there's so much scope for busking on the streets here, and that's where I got my education in terms of performing and projecting myself. Because in that ballet group that won the All Ireland at the National <laughs> Stadium, remember I was talking about earlier? I do. Yeah, I that do. ballet group, I wasn't allowed to sing. And I was okay, too, because I had to stand there, play the guitar, and back people up, which is something that I've learned to do as well from being involved in Irish folk music. I wanted to talk about that earlier, just in terms of folk music. You were asking about folk music. I became very aware of like what the folk music scene was. Because in America, it's uh, you'd heard of the Dubliners and the Clancy Brothers, obviously. Mm -hmm. And when I got here, then it was a completely different thing, you know? I mean, they were popular uh, and respected in that not only for their international success, but for their talent. Liam Clancy was amazing. The Dubliners were amazing. But you never would have really heard, of, I wouldn't have heard of the, you know, the Bathy Band or Planksty or, yeah. you know. And then out of that came Moving Hearts. So I was, I was a teenager for all of that as well, if you know what I mean, yeah, like, yeah. you know, as that was happening and became very aware of, you know, what it was in terms of... And the, that was really the ballad boom as well in, in, in Ireland, that, that era, like, wasn't it? 
It was, yeah. If you, know? you if you like, yeah. Because you did you did have um other stars like Jim McCann, Paddy Riley, Danny Doyle, Mary Black was coming through around that. Sure, Do you know sure, I mean? all those. Yeah. So there was a lot, like yeah, yeah, there was an but awful the, lot. But the Clancy's in 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 America, like you mentioned, the Beatles. I mean, it was the same thing for them. Like the Clancy's used to be contracted to play the the Playboy clubs. You sure, know what I mean, like sure, and this was a huge influence <laughs> on Bob Dylan. I mean, you know that anyway, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I yeah. was actually disgusted yeah. one time. I was in Greenwich uh, Greenwich Village. We were on White Horse. You walked all the way up to the way our store. It was closed. No, but it wasn't closed. Oh, I was fuck. I wish it was closed because I wouldn't have fucking figured this out. Went in, man. Not one thing anywhere saying that any one of these people played there. You when know? did you go there? Oh, that was a couple of years ago, man. Because um, I can remember they're going with my friend Craig Chester, and there seemed to be things in there. No, I went in, man, and uh, I asked, and it was like as if I asked someone for a fucking organ. You know, as if I said, "Can I have one of your lungs?" The way you, man looked like you know it was like as if it meant nothing to him yeah which I thought was because that was a Greenwich Village but that's a where yeah yeah part, the, the White Horse the yeah, Clancy's yeah. didn't yeah. Gene Raskin was knocking out um, those were the days and like Beaten. you know like it was just yeah yeah for such for such uh, well you know things rise and fall you know because like you were talking about the lobby there earlier or we were talking we mentioned the lobby there earlier you know, the venues rise and venues fall that's just the way it goes the lobby was an institution I, 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 this is actually one of the questions I'd written down because yeah. that's the topic if we start well I started busking in Cork in 1984 uh, with, with the guys that were Princess Street I'd been busking prior to that while I was in college, 81, 82, 83, 84, and I started busking with mm. an American guy called Kevin McLaughlin. And then Kevin and I, in the Christmas of 83, we ran into Mick Garrity, the fellow who uh, was in Princess Street, the other guitar player in Princess Street, so to speak. Did he write uh, Speak to Me? He didn't write Speak to Me. I wrote Speak to Me with Donald Desmond Don't, from oh. Cold Sweat. You got to keep up here, Roy. I'm right, man. There's so much going on back and forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm starting to get um, it. Yeah, yeah. In any case, uh, yeah. But Mick played the slide guitar and speak to me. And Mick wrote, I'm um, sitting in the bar. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, Not, yeah. Um, so from 84, then I was just finishing up my degree, my arts degree, and starting my H-dip in education. From 84 to about 86, we played uh, on Princess Street. And we were kind of a sensation around the town and that we were the guys that were playing the buskers on Princess Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, we used to get big crowds and have lots of fun. And uh, we were young. And uh, <laughs> talk about the ballad boom. There was a place called the Lacey House. That's right. And the Lacey House. Um, uh, Barbarossa's now. Used to, have, uh, used to have ballad groups on Thursday nights and stuff. And Saturday nights, well, and Thursday nights in particular. You'll love this story. There were bands like Dan Petty Andy. You remember, did you ever hear them? No. You didn't hear Dan Petty? You know Gallion? Oh, yeah. Finnegan's Wake? Yeah. Dan Petty Andy. <laughs> and they were from Tralee. Uh, they had a kind of an edge to them in that they liked herbal cigarettes in a way the other ballet grads didn't. So, of course, we, <laughs> we were... Uh, we were <laughs> friends with Dan Petty Andy from Tralee, Dan Petty Andy. But uh, Delacy House thought they uh, would pull a smart move. They said, do you want to come up and uh, open up for the ballet groups? We'll give you 30 pounds. I was like, oh, okay. So <laughs> we did that of a Thursday night. Instead of going busking, we did that of a Thursday night. And myself, Mick Bryan, and I think Kevin McLaughlin. But anyway, we went up there and we opened up for <coughs> whoever it was. We'll just say Galleon. Oh, at the time and we finished and, you know we played our country rock John Prine playing stuff by Bob Dylan and 
whatever kind of songs we'd written ourselves, like sitting in a bar, we played for about a half an hour and they gave us 30 pounds. It was like, hey, that's great, 30 pounds, you know, between us. It's like <laughs> 750 each, you know, great. And uh, then we went back busking <laughs> down the street. We didn't stick around to watch. The no, we're best. And the guy who booked us came down. He was laughing. He was like, "He said, I, I hired you to stop doing this." He said, "Because people are coming as far as you, and, and they're not coming so to much. the club." <laughs> that actually happened. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, that actually happened. But you know, I mean, it, 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 you know, we bust as much as we could, and I really learned. I personally, anyway, learned really how to project, and that's where I, I met Mick. That's where I got really playing with Mick Garrity. Um, and then Brian Carroll, who I still play with and yeah. write and work yeah. with to this day. Yeah, that's where um, we started. Brian played percussion. It was on St. Patrick's Day, um, uh, 1984, that we first went busking in that configuration. And all these movies, a huge crowd, and we made 60 quid, which is like, whoa, mm. in 1984, 60 yeah. pounds, a lot of bread. And we got huge crowds. And I remember two things. I remember these two women wanted to sing Islands in the Stream by Dolly Parton mm -hmm. and uh, what's his name? Uh, Kenny Rogers. Kenny Rogers. And like we made a hames of backing him up singing it. <laughs> I mean, I, I played that subsequently with Eleanor Healy because she knows all the chords, right? She knows everything, Eleanor, which we'll get to later on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it's like, it's an impossible song. I mean, it doesn't modulate up, it modulates down, right. you know? And these two Cork women were singing, Islands in the stream, that is what we... And I remember we tried to back them up, and it was like, you know. And then the next thing that happens, I, what I also remember is that we stopped because a guy came up to me. He said, we're Branch. We're looking for some guy. Get out of here. So we stopped then. He said, we're with Branch. He was playing clothes. Yeah. And we're looking for someone here. Wow. So get out of here. But he, he was really polite. He's, he was polite about it. And uh, it's really funny, really, because uh, I can remember the street people that we knew back then in Cork were something else. And there's still street people in Cork. There's still, you know, there's still a problem. Absolutely. You know, one of the things we did is Prince Street, in a, there was the Cork 800 in 1985. Do you remember that? Of course you don't. You weren't even born. No, I was born in 86. There you go. The, in, eight, in 1985, uh, there was a Cork 800 thing, and Simon Community asked us to be the band on the float. And Paul O'Donnell, who still plays piano and stuff like that, he had taken an interest in this as well to be, and we got a piano on the back of a float and a generator and a bunch of mics, and as we're pulling into Patrick Street, we're still trying to like get this stuff going, like you know, because like, come on, it's time to go. We could get... Eventually we started playing, but it was more of a laugh more than anything else. But I remember that 1985 we did, that was a big thing we did in the city. Brilliant. That we played on the back of a, a float for Simon wow. with Paul O'Donnell. I don't know if Paul's listening to this. He still works up in UCC, plays piano, has bands and all this sort of stuff. Great piano player. But uh, yeah, that's one of the things we did so that it's in your podcast that you know. And the other thing we did is we, we we auditioned, or we 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 made a tape up in uh, Fermoy in around 1985 to be on a TV show. It was one of those TV shows. It was like talent, right? A talent show, and they did a cork. What was it called? Uh, it was something sort of like uh, it was like you're a star, but it wasn't even that much. It wasn't 
It was wasn't that, that. Was that the thing that Shea Healy was doing? No, it wasn't Shea Healy. That we, we did that later. Nighthawks? Yeah, yeah, we did that with Nighthawks way later. No, this All is right. Fiona Kennedy. Yeah. And John Spillane with the Stargazers got through. We didn't get through. We went up to Fermoy and we recorded two songs, Sitting in a Bar and Probably Always Will. Um, Sitting in a Bar, Mick Garrity wrote, and uh, Probably Always Will was an Ozark Mountain Daredevil song because by that time we were into deep Americana. Right. We knew who the Ozark Mountain Daredevils and the Grateful Dead were, you see. And we knew who R.E.M. were because we had Kevin McLaughlin come over and we knew who Husker Du was and mm. the sort of the punky, rocky thing that was happening in the 80s in America. And uh, we... We thought we had something that no one else had. I guess we did in a way, like, you know, but we went up to Fromoy to, uh, what's his name's place? Um, up in Fromoy, um, Loudest Whisper, Brian O'Reilly's place. Right. And Brian was the first person to record us. He had recorded my band Cold Sweat as well, actually, now that I think about it, in Fromoy, because Fromoy is just down the river from Mallow. Mm -hmm. That's the other big thing. There was a place in Fromoy called the Stardust or the... There was, there was a club in Fermoy where all the rock bands played as well. I mean, like they all the serious rock bands would play there in Fermoy back in the day. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that was a thing. It was a different time. There was live music. There was a more of a premium on live music and bands back then, in a way that there isn't now. In that, you could, for a while, make a living from it. I, I suppose you can still kind of do that today, but I don't know. I don't know how it is the same now, but anyway, that's a different story entirely. But that that's something that we did. We do all those things with that form of Princess Street from 1984, St. Patrick's Day 1984, to about the summer of 86. And then in the summer of 86, Mick and Brian decided to go to Greece. We had enough. I mean, like, you know, it's great to be busking, but it, yeah. you know, we were young. We wanted, I wanted to go to New York, really wanted to go to New York. All right. Imagine that. Yeah, imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> I really wanted to go back to New York. Um, and we were all going to go, but then it didn't. And I went to New York with Billy from Cold Sweat. And that's where we got the first open kitchen together in New York in 1986. So how did it come about? This was years. 86, 87, yeah. So, no, it was, it was years later when you played on top of the Empire State. Oh, many years later, yeah. Yeah. We played there in 2002. Wow. So, I mean, I, I know you, 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 yeah. you said it earlier. Well, what happened was, just so it, that you do get a assess on this, from 84 to 86, it was... Princess Street. Then I went to New York, and in 86, 87 was the beginnings mm -hmm. of what I called Open Kitchen. Mm -hmm. um, myself and Billy, Billy from Mallow, we had a couple of Sonny Condell songs. We were playing Ride On by Jimmy McCarthy, and we had a whole bunch of songs that we brought, and we were something of a, a, a small sensation in Greenwich Village in the summer of 1987. Brilliant. Yeah, playing all these, these things. Madonna's manager came down to see us, a woman called Camille Barbone. She had heard that we were something, something of a sensation. But then, that was the summer of 87, we played that's this, this form of open kitchen with two American musicians, a guy called Glenn Newmark and another guy called Brian Lucy. Brian Lucy is now a much sought after mastering, uh, mastering producer. Maybe your producer here has heard of Brian Lucy out in New York, yeah, he was our guitar player. And we did a tape over there in the studio, not unlike this. Cool. This chair is farting. <laughs> <laughs> um, in any the case- blame the chair trick. Blame the chair trick, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you put me on this chair, in any case. Look, Hank, if you want to stop the interview, it's fine, man. Don't be getting nervous on me now, all right? No, no, <laughs> no, no. 
But in any case, uh, yeah, we did a tape there with uh, a couple of songs by Sonny Condell, Down in the City and Eyelids into Snow. And we did a song, an instrumental of mine called Flight of the Mako Shark. We did another Ozark Mountain Daredevil song over there. And we did uh, a, an early version of Song For You. Um, yeah, we did that there and we sold that at, at gigs there and it was sensational. We were playing like seven nights a week. Perfect. I'd wake up in the morning not being able to talk and then it comes seven o'clock, my voice would come back and go out and do it, it all again. again night after night after night, like the Beatles in Hamburg. And by that time, I took a job teaching in New York, but I'd had enough of teaching. It didn't go well for me. and it, I wasn't getting paid very well. There was a Franciscan brother, Brother Brian Johnson, who ran it. He was from Offley. He was an interesting man. He was a published poet, and he had to be a dictator during the day, but at night he'd be into poetry and song and music, mm -hmm. and he liked the fact that I played music. He was my boss, and I think he was very disappointed when I split, but I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with being uh, a teacher, having to be up at seven o'clock in the morning to face a bunch of kids, and like having got home on the subway at five o'clock in the yeah. morning from hanging out in Greenwich Village just to be in Greenwich Village. So by that time, I had started playing. I was young, I was strong enough to do it seven nights a week, and we did it seven nights a week. And that's where I met, met my friend Tom Clark as well. Yeah, great player, man. Great, great yeah, guitarist. Tom's, Tom's a huge influence on me. Turned me on to a whole bunch of American music in the meantime. Mm. That I learned retrospectively. No, he's nice he's well. kind of like uh, he that my father's uh, advice of like the best musicians are the people that you don't really hear about, mm. Mm. or you, if you might hear about them, but like that a time, lot of people have heard of Tom Clark. Though, well, right? yeah, I guess they have. Like you, you know, know, but Tom turned me on to so much music, you yeah. know, and I turned him on to music. He's his is funny. Yeah, if he's listening to this. He, he'll know. He'll know this. He turned on so much American. Rock and roll, country music. You know, I was aware of Chuck Berry and I was aware of yeah. Elvis Presley. You know, I loved all those people. I had heard about all them from listening to my beloved Beatles and Rolling Stones mm. and Bob Dylan. But Tom. Tom loves Buddy Holly. Uh, Buddy Holly. And I mean, I, I knew all, the, all yeah. those people were, but I really learned a lot from him. But the funny thing, and not only that early rock and roll stuff, but a lot about punk rock and a lot about American country rock. Mm. And I'm not talking about the Eagles country rock. I'm talking about like serious, serious American country players. And there's a whole scene in America that you never really hear about, mm. you know, or you, you no, know, it's all there for you to be here about now. It's all, probably all online and stuff like that. But back then it was right. And Tom knew it all. But the funny thing was he's from Illinois. Mm. And so is John Prine. He That's didn't know right who, now. he didn't know who John Prine was. No way. Yeah. He didn't know who John Prine was. I oh. turned him on to John Prine. And he's from Illinois. And he's from Illinois. Wow, I didn't They're know both that. from Illinois. Yeah. But that's the way it was. Like I said, when I knew John Prime, when I heard of John Prime here in Cork back in the mid-80s when we were busking, it was like a secret. It was almost like a secret. Now, he'd been here to play and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But to know about him was almost like a secret. He wasn't like on top of the pops. He wasn't on, I don't even think he was on the Old Grey Whistle test, although I could be wrong about that. That's great to see him getting all the awards he's after getting recently as well. John Prime still, you know. Every bit of him. He's, he's a legend. Yeah. I want to ask you, Hank, while we're talking about bands, um, like I, I've, I've seen photographs in your house of you playing with Bono. I've seen you, um, I, I've seen you in concert with um, a lot of people. 
like, but one that's jumping at me that I wanted to ask you about is uh, Declan Sinnott. We had, you had a band called, you, you mentioned Eleanor earlier as well, and Martin Lee, he was in that band too, wasn't he? Small Town Small Talk. Small Town Talk, yeah. Yes. How, how did that come about? Because that, that was one of the... Uh, the more recent bands that I got to see when I, I wasn't old enough to see it in, in Open Kitchen and, and Princess Street when they were um, on the go that many years ago. Right. But one of the... Cause Not I, like your uncle. Yeah, like my uncle Mick Hutch, yeah. I must <laughs> talk about him too. But Declan Sinnott, um, how how did that come about? All I mean, that music that, I talked I, about earlier. I've seen it. All the, that music I talked about earlier. I've seen in in, in in the old pav when, when Pat Connor had it. Yeah, I, that was I, a great venue. I watched the uh, small town talk. Man, yeah. you were on fire. Like it, it was great. Um, That's great. I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed all that and it was a great thing to be doing with Martin and Honor and Declan. But all that music I was talking about earlier, mm -hmm. um Declan was into all that stuff as well. And it when we got back playing, this kind of dovetails nicely back into what we're talking about. So when I came back here to get married at the end of 87 to Eileen. It was kind of a big rock and roll reunion wedding. <laughs> <laughs> um, in Mallow. Did I mention I, Mallow? Yeah, I did, yeah, I mentioned Mallow. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a big deal anyway that we played. And uh, we were gonna go back to New York, but then my dad got sick. So we went back to New York at the beginning of 88, came back here at the beginning of 88, and then uh, Eileen was expecting our first child, so instead of going back to New York like we had planned, we ended up back here, and it turned out the boys were back from Greece. Mick Garrity was, anyway, from mm -hmm. Greece, and we ran into Martin Moilet uh, from Mayo, who was the bassist in Princess Street, um, Edel Sullivan, who was the fiddle player. She had remember seeing us as she was like a young teenager around the city. She played fiddle, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Princess Street were born, and that's mm. the band that Declan took notice of. But prior to that, in around 1985, uh, Mick Garrity and I, from Princess Street, were taking guitar lessons off of, Mick, uh, of Declan Sinnott here in the city. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah, he was around the city. Declan likes Cork. I heard something about Cork. I, I'd like to trademark this. But I didn't say it, so I don't know who said it first, but I'm going to say it here. There's something about Cork, Roy. If you like it, it has a way of keeping you. And that goes back to, you asked me about whether I'm a New Yorker. Mm. But there's something about Cork. If you like Cork, it has a way of keeping you. And uh, I think Declan's subject to that as well. What because he lives down by Bandon now. <laughs> yeah. After years of living in Cork. He was living in Cork in the wake of, uh, <coughs> it's sort of in between um, moving hearts and getting involved with... Uh, uh, Mary Black, seriously. Mm -hmm. He was working with Jimmy Mack, another great yeah, Cork songwriter. Yeah. And Noel Brazil, who's from yeah. Waterford, but love Cork. Um, another great songwriter. Declan was working with all these great songwriters. Um, so in between sort of like uh, Moving Hearts and Mary Black, he was based in Cork. And all those, the music I was talking about that I loved and that we loved, he loved as well. And he gave Mick and I lessons. Brilliant. I never heard of that. Yeah, he gave Mick Garrity and I lessons. We used to, he was giving lessons at that point. He was living here in Cork and we would go to his house and sit there for a half an hour, 45 minutes. And yeah, and uh, Mick took the lessons very seriously. Um, I'm not saying I didn't. No, I know what you mean. I, I didn't, like, you know, but uh, so I got to know him like that. He was sort of a guitar teacher. Jeez, what a bite to be getting guitar lessons on. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
there was all that, yeah. Wow. Big time, like, you know. And so then when we came back a few years later, in 88, our chops were a lot better. I had played, uh, you know, like being in a band and all this sort of stuff in New York and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, so when we got together, this dovetails into the lobby as well. He started taking notice of the band and he would jam with the band. He would jam with Princess Street as well. Now, he didn't produce The Night John Lynch Lost His Glasses, mm-hmm. which is our first thing 30 years ago. It was Princess Street's first sort of album, album, mini album, stuff like that. But he did produce a single for us and he did a session with us, which the recordings still have survived to this day and I put out eventually on an open kitchen on Princess Street. So as well as being a musician friend and a comrade and a record he was a record producer Mm -hmm. he was all those things to us and very authoritative and uh understood what the vibe was with princess street um and uh that's how i got involved with declan first yeah brilliant yeah yeah but he's always been a friend as well i mean like he's he's a lot of fun to be with (laughs) i just loved how you how you complimented each other when when you were playing because as you know like uh, the old cliche less is more and all that and it was great when, um, you know, one of you would like hold back. Sometimes two of you would hold back. What you serve the song and all that. And then when it was your turn to do your thing, you, you, you do your thing. It's just, it's like um, as if um, you were like veterans of it. You know, you're like you're, well. By the time you know, we got small to, town talk together, we'd to, all how yeah. to put it across. You know, yeah. I'd been in. Uh, I'd been playing with Martin Lee. Um, who's a, an amazing musician and a phenomenal drummer uh, for years at that point. And as well as that, I've been playing with Eleanor Healy. Yeah. And Eleanor, um, it's only now that I'm mentioning her in this interview, but she's yeah, been a, pretty essential to almost everything I've done. She's been around a lot of your work. Yeah, yeah since um, the breakup of Prince Street, anyway, she's on lots of stuff. And almost yeah, everything yeah. I've done up until, I don't know, Great player, and she was always great with um, harmonies as well. Yeah, because what happened was I found myself back in Cork. Uh, Princess Street broke up in 1990. <laughs> we released that single song for you, which I think you're going to play later on. Yeah, well. Uh, and we broke up <laughs> the way you do. Um, basically, we just, we our contract with Pat Conway in the lobby and I had sort of like run out as manager. And no one really wanted to manage the band. I certainly didn't want to be involved in managing the band. I, guess where I went? <laughs> back to New York. I went back to New York, <laughs> over to Tom Clark. And All the boys right. went back to Greece. How about that? Wow. Yeah. Uh, and when I came back then, I pretty much ran away. It was kind of irresponsible. I was married to Eileen, and we had two kids, Rory and Sarah. My daughter Sarah still gives me a hard time about this. I mean, she's only about three or four months old, but she says, you <laughs> you abandoned me. I, I, I pretty much did. I ran away for like three months wow. and uh, three or four months <laughs> in New York City. Well, I came back, so it's fine. Like, you know, they, they, you know, you know, it's like, you know, I just, I had to get out of here. Oh, uh, the prodigal daddy, huh? Yeah, it was a, there was a certain amount of that, you know, but um, I came back in 1990 and uh, that's when I got Open Kitchen together. But that's also when I really started working with Eleanor. Because she was uh, 17, 18, around that time. And she used to babysit for us. 
she's sort of the babysitter. And I noticed that she played guitar and sang. And I noticed not only did she play guitar and sang, like she was really, really good. Mm. Um, phenomenally good. And I remember at the time there was a band called the Five Joyful Mysteries. Did you ever hear them? <laughs> you didn't hear the Five Joyful no. Mysteries? You know who Anya Whelan is, don't Absolutely, you? Absolutely. Yeah, Anya was one of the Five Joyful Mysteries. Your man, the, our engineer is smiling. You remember them, don't you? You don't remember them either. But they were one of the lobby bands. They were like one of the lobby bands, the Five Joyful Mysteries. And Eleanor was the bass player in that. And uh, they got on Nighthawks. And th you were asking about Shea Healy there earlier. Princess Street, that whole period there, the night John Lynch lost his glasses, uh, speak to me and all that. We got on Nighthawks and stuff like that. And yeah, we also played Lark by the Lee. Because uh, it, was, it was when you said about Twice. John Spillane. Yeah. I knew that John was on Nighthawks with um, uh, Noel Shine, wasn't he? They might have been. I don't I know. Think they, I think John. Um, I must ask Mary. Yeah, because I think Fiona. Mary came, Green. She's yeah. someone else I've been very involved with musically. Because I think. Writing they, songs. It's a great song. Didn't you do um, uh, River Lee? And also Too Gone Too Young. Oh, yeah, great song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that about Noel Brazil, actually? Yes, it was. Yeah. Well, he was the inspiration. Yeah. He was the inspiration. We, we were sitting down one day. She had a relationship with him. Not, was not, a, not a romantic really relationship, was, yeah, but uh, he. Noel Shine, her husband and, and her, were friends with, with Noel Brazil. And I was friends with Noel Brazil, and we just were swapping stories one day, and all of a sudden, before we knew it, we had a song about him, yeah. I was always intrigued by the first line on that song. He always wore the best boots. He really knew his letter. Well, that Mary, Mary said that. And I, that's what, I said, that, those are great lines. So that, that's what kicked it off. That's kind of how I write songs. I have to ask you about, because I, I know you, you travel a lot and, and I know um, you're well known, obviously, in New York, <laughs> but around America, uh, uh, in Europe and Holland and everywhere, you know, because um, I know you, you go and play a lot. But um, when I first heard about Hank Waddell was through my uncle, uh, Mick Hutchinson, because yeah. you used to play together. And um, I know you, you toured quite a bit in France. We did two tours in France. It's like talking about the military. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't be left into the military. By 1993, I'd known your uncle uh, quite a, quite well from the lobby scene. Yeah. Because Mick was one of the people that would play the lobby. He'd often open up for either Princess Street or Open Kitchen, or we'd be on the same bill, or he might be playing earlier than us. And him and Steve Sullivan in particular were some of the solo artists that played there at the time and I got to know Mick and uh, we got to be friends and got to hang out and play guitar and he, Mick had a, a penchant for American country rock. Mm -hmm. So it was very, um, it, was, uh, it wasn't hard for me to kind of get in there. So, and he was also interested in songwriting big time as well, like, you know, so. Yeah, you Mick's know. a great songwriter. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, for, for some reason, I always thought that you were, um, Teenagers when you knew each other first, but it was no, no. Lobby, but the thing is, he no. The funny thing about that is, is that you see, this is aspects of Cork. Now, uh, it should be said really that my first real experience of Cork was playing basketball in Grana Oh, right. Now up in the Procol Hall or the Broken Hall, there's the call. The Broken Hall, <laughs> yeah. And going up and playing basketball from Mallow. Because coming from America, I was a keen basketball player. And we used to 
God, we used to get on the train in Malo and get the train from Malo to Cork, to Kent Station, walk to the number two bus stop on Patrick's Bridge and get the bus up to Grand, play the games, get on the bus, and then get the train back to Mallow. There's dedication. In, the sev- in 1974, 75, 76, I would do that regularly. That was my first experience at Cork. That's, and that's where I discovered Crawley's Music Shop, and God rest me, Crawley. Yeah. I used to go in there, and he used to let me play guitar. Now, you know, I used to plug things in and just wish I could buy it. Yeah. But I was one of many people that do it, and he was great for that. He was, he really, was a really great, great man. Yeah, yeah. He was great for advice and, and like, for, yeah. you know, um, helping guys out, like, you know. We're, we're really jumping back and forth here now. We are. We're getting we? it all in there now, yeah. I know. So, so that's how, but the thing was then when I got to meet Mick then many years later in the 80s, uh, he says, I kind of remember you playing basketball in Grand because I used to play basketball in Grand as well. So that's how I, they, we, were, we didn't know each other. So Back then, we're playing in, in the Broken Hall, no, in the Broken Hall, no. But we did know, we got to know each other because he was playing in the lobby. And he used to play with Pat Horgan. And I think eventually got the Dizzy Blues Band together, That's which right. is still kind of going, still really. Going, yeah. You know, down the corner house and that. On a Thursday night. On Thursday nights and stuff like that. I played there recently, actually. So just before we, we get on about the lobby, because I know, I know that's going to be a, a good conversation, but... Um, do you, I, I wrote down this question last night because you're one of the guys who have, like you came through all of that and you're still doing it and you're still top of your game. Um, I just wanted to ask you, um, between the Cork and even Irish uh, music scene between then and now, do you see, like there's a couple of things going on here now, um, First of all, yeah, I understand with with uh, social media and all these other um, outlets for uh, broadcasting your music, it's easier. Some people say that it's flooded a bit more now that anybody can upload stuff and everything. But just on the the live music scene I'm talking about in our country and particular Cork, because you were based here, um, do you think it's uh, similar just in a modern world or do you think it's it's changed a lot or... From a guy who's been through it, do you see much differences or is it still similar? Or, or What's your thoughts on that? I think that then, now as then, the music business is controlled by managers, promoters, agents. Um controlled, regulated, um, and maintained by those people. It's not maintained by musicians, except if they maintain themselves. Um, But it was the same, it's the same now as it was then. If you have the right PR now, it was the same back then. If you're the right PR back then, it's always been hard, basically. So well, like, I, I don't even want to say that it's it's not like working in a coal mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know you know, it's not like working in a sweatshop. You know, if you decide to be a musician, it stands to reason that if you want to make a living from it or have a life out of it, you owe it to yourself to 
either put yourself and your trust in someone that's going to do the business for you or you take that side of it yourself or you do a mixture of both. Um, you're as good as your agent or the people that are behind you or the people in the business. It's still run by agents, PR, promoters, venue owners, people that own chains of venues. That's who control the music business. And it's always been the way. Back in the day, it was the dance halls. Mm -hmm. The people around the dance halls. Uh, the people who ran the rock clubs. But the places change. The geography changes. But I don't think there's much of a difference between then and now in terms of the business. Um, the technology changes. Mm -hmm. The dance steps the dance steps don't really change, actually, but the music, <laughs> the music, I mean, like, you know, you ever see, uh, you can look at people dancing to Uptown Funk in the 1920s, you know, get those videos that mash it up and all that sort of yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. you know, so, you know, dancing is dancing and a good beat is a good beat and a good song is a good song and, you know, songs rise, songs fall. Uh, I think the main difference is, is that Things are far more instantaneous. But then if you were to talk to someone in 1980 or 1970, you know, let's like I'm going to be 57 next month. So 50 years ago, if you were born, if you were 57 in 1970, you would have been born in 1913. So you lived through two world wars, mm -hmm. a depression and two world wars, if you were lucky. And you got to be 57 in 1970. Can you imagine the change? There was recording in 1913, but can you imagine the change in technology? Did you mean they would have said the same thing back They would then have said as, the as, same as, thing. Yeah, yeah. But I don't want to give you the impression that I think it's always this, the very same. Mm. But the more things change, the more things change. Well, change is inevitable anyway, you know? Change is inevitable. I don't know what it's like for someone that would be in their early 20s now that have mastered their craft and they wanted to go out and make a living from it or make a lifestyle from it, I, ha I all I can say is just just do it. Going on about that, that band, God Alone. I, I saw a band called God Alone. Or not a band, I didn't see a band. I met a guy who played drums with God Alone. Or, um, and he was with playing with other kids in the school. They got on stage and they were playing like Pretty Woman. Wow. Like... And these were all under 20 kids. Great. And it was another guy singing New York, New York by Frank Sinatra. This kid was 17. So I was like, wow. So there's, you know, anyone that's into music, um, they'll listen to it. I, I, I think everything's a little more in instantaneous. Well, probably a lot more instantaneous these days. But I think the brain can only take so much, mm -hmm. you know. So I think... The people that are into music now, the young people that are into music now, they'll face their own versions of the, the problems that I faced or you faced or Mick Hutch faced or Declan Sinner faced as they were coming up, their yeah, own version yeah. of those hassles. But I think the thing to remember always is that musicians don't run the music business. It's run by producers, agents, managers, promoters.
Country rock and roll, rhythm and blues. 